another week. It's time for your questions. Question show time. So wherever you are on my channel, if an idea pops into your brain, just type it down. I will gather a bunch of them up and I will answer them here. Now, I did an episode all about, uh, or I answered a question about balloons and rockets, and I said that really the major sticking point is the name. And you guys tried your best to come up with names. And as you'll see, this is still really hard. So, so please, feel free. Once we crack this, then we will be able to have uh, rockets launched from balloons. These are obviously balloonars, a bala launch, ultra low net density upper atmospheric rocket launch platforms, U-L-N-D-U-A-R-L-P. It doesn't just roll off the tongue. BARF, Balloon Assist Rocket Facility. HARP, High Atmosphere Rocket Platform. BAR Launch System, Balloon Assisted Rocket, huh? Balloon Stick Missiles, Pouch Missiles, Booster Blimps, Rocket Bags, Sack Nav. Balloon Rocket, Name Solved. Bloomers, Now We Can. You rang? Brockets, B-Type Rockets, BARS, Balloon Assisted Rocket Systems, Rockets. Okay, I'm done. How about flockets? This is especially good if it's mostly the smaller rockets that get sent up this way. Floating rockets. How about simply calling them orbital airships? Omar Ismail. Hey Fraser, do you think it's possible for intelligent life to have started out on Venus when the sun was cooler and it had liquid water and as it heated up, been forced to move to Earth as the runaway greenhouse effect took hold and there's no remnants of it because of the pressure and the heat? We know that all life on Earth is connected. It shares a common ancestor. And if you go all the way back, you, know, you can trace this lineage of life on Earth to the first life form that probably emerged really as soon as life was possible to exist here on planet Earth. Now, the question is that you know, scientists still haven't figured out where that first life form came from. Was it, uh, you know, was there some kind of puddle that got struck by lightning or did it form down in the bottom of the of the deep sea vents of the ocean we don't really know but one other intriguing idea is this concept called panspermia and so you can imagine that life forms can travel from world to world within the solar system on asteroids an asteroid smashes into a planet kicks some debris up into space, the meteorite debris moves through the solar system and after a certain amount of time ends up on another planet and maybe seeds that planet with life. And so maybe all life on Earth started from Mars or maybe all life on Earth started from Venus. And astronomers have found meteorites that came from Mars. And so we know that this, this happens. So is it possible that it came from Venus? It's less likely that it came from Venus only because Venus has a much, you know, it has more gravity. But the more likely candidate is that it came from Mars. And so, you know, some object a long, long time ago smashed into Mars when it was wetter and more hospitable to life and spread you know, life around here in the solar system. But still, we just don't know. And this is one of the reasons why we need to send spacecraft to Venus. We need to send spacecraft to Mars to look for life and try to understand their histories. Why Xiang? Come on, you can't call it a paradox when you've only examined 0.000017% of the galaxy. This is talking about the idea of the Fermi paradox, right? That, the, that we look out into space and we don't see any aliens and so we wonder where they are. And I get this argument a lot from people and so I wanted to sort of address it in a way that, that you can sort of see why it still remains a paradox. And this is the idea, there is nothing to prevent any alien civilization from 
exploring and colonizing the entire Milky Way galaxy, right? It's hard, but it doesn't defy the laws of physics. You know, let's say that the Milky Way is 120,000 light years across. So you send, you start at one end of the Milky Way and you send a robotic self-replicating robot to another star system. Maybe you only go 10% the speed of light and then it builds as many copies of itself as it can and it sends new probes to new worlds and then those send new probes to new worlds and maybe there's, there's um, you know, some kind of life ship that follows behind them and seeds them with life with the you know, DNA and the first creatures and after a few million years you get habitable ecosystems on some of these worlds. So the idea of the Fermi Paradox, the part that's so weird is that you would expect these, these whatever intelligent civilization arose to colonize the entire galaxy. So it doesn't really matter which corner of the galaxy it started in, it's going to attempt to colonize the whole thing. And yet here we are, we don't see any ancient structures, we don't see any monoliths, we don't see any robotic space, you know, robotic spacecraft in orbit. And this is technology that is kind of within our grasp now. I and mean, we can't build a self-replicating robotic factory capable of traveling 10% the speed of light today, but it doesn't seem that far off. Like it feels like it's the kind of technology that we could get probably within about 100 years from now. So it's weird that still, you know, so it doesn't matter where these civilizations started, any part of the, of the galaxy, you would expect them to colonize the entire galaxy, and yet we don't see any evidence of it whatsoever. Jim Becker. I just read in your article in Universe Today entitled Breathing Lunar Dust Could Give Astronauts Bronchitis and Even Lung Cancer. would like to know if those same conditions could cause problems for astronauts that go to Mars. Now we know that Mars sucks in so many ways, low atmospheric pressure, low gravity, intense radiation, but one of the ways that it doesn't suck in the same way as the moon is it doesn't have this, this tiny sort of lunar dust that's so toxic. And the reason the dust on the moon is so toxic is because there's no weathering. So all of that dust is from where micrometeorites and meteorites smash into the surface of the moon and just sort of tore up lunar rock into smaller and smaller pieces of, of, of dust. And if you look at this stuff under a microscope, it looks like little pieces of glass, and this is the problem. It gets into your lungs, irritates them, and potentially can cause, as we said in this article, bronchitis and lung cancer. But with Mars, there is wind, and so there is this constant weathering. There's sand dunes. There isn't water action, but there is, sand, uh, there is wind. And so you can imagine that the particles on Mars are going to be more smooth and not as toxic as they are on the moon. Rudy von Staden, why not have Caesar dock with ISS to return the sample? Seems to have a sample packaged in a separate reentry vehicle is both risky and expensive, or would the physics of matching the velocities of Caesar and the ISS be too complicated? So this was in response to the uh, NASA wanting to bring a sample back from a comet episode that I did, but I think it's sort of a general conversation that you want to have about sample return missions. And right now, all the sample return missions, the, the Stardust mission, the, the Hayabusa missions, they return their samples with a sample capsule back to Earth. That's what um, OSIRIS-REx is going to do, and that's what CSER is going to do as well. And so what you're proposing is, instead of having the sample capsule come back to Earth, why don't we take it to the International Space Station and deal with it there? And I think, you know, in a philosophical way, I think that's a very good idea, right? Because um, 
let's minimize the chances of any kind of planetary contamination. You know, we don't want to, it's not like Mars life is going to infect Earth life and we're all going to die from the Martian plague, but any amount of, of those samples making their way to Earth, you always run the risk of their being contaminated. Now, scientists are going to do a really good job to try and minimize that contamination, but it's always possible. So, that idea of like, hey, let's just bring these samples back to a place that's pristine, that's in space, that's never seen Earth, is a pretty good idea. But as you said in your question, the problem is matching the velocities. You've got to get escape from Mars, you've got to do a transfer orbit to get back to Earth, and you've got to match the velocity of the International Space Station. And that's the part that's going to be really tough. You've got to go into orbit around Earth, and you've got to match that velocity. And that's going to require a much larger, more complicated return vehicle. So you can imagine times when maybe we put spacecraft up at, say, the lunar Lagrange points or the Earth-Sun Lagrange points, and those places are fairly easy to get to with a minimum amount of fuel. And so that's what I sort of anticipate the future of returning samples. And that's a really good justification for why we want to build some of these other space stations out there further in the solar system. Michael Arcelanot. Can we grab asteroids and bring them back to Earth for a controlled entry to a desert somewhere? Or is this too dangerous due to contamination of the atmosphere? Hey Michael, I like the idea of bringing material from space and bringing it back to Earth. You know, this is sort of what the payoff of space mining is going to be. But you can't just drop an asteroid into the atmosphere of the Earth, right? They're going, I mean, we see what happens. You see like a larger asteroid like Chelyabinsk, they explode. Even bigger asteroids, they make it to the Earth and they cause devastation. Yeah, maybe you could aim it for a place that you know has no population, but the chances of making a mistake are too great. Uh, if you make it too small, the whole thing burns up in the atmosphere and it's gone. So we're going to need to develop some kind of re-entry system for the stuff that we're going to try to bring back from space. We're going to need to bring it softly and safely through the atmosphere. And that's going to be with some kind of heat shield and it's going to use parachutes. And at a certain point, you know, because it's not people, it's, you know, if you're just trying to bring uh, platinum ore back from asteroids, you can have it whack into the ground going hundreds, even a thousand kilometers per hour. It's not as dangerous as something that's going to be going 25,000 kilometers per hour, but you are going to still need to soften the landing a bit. But I'm sure this is the kind of challenge that the asteroid mining company is going to work on. What is the right amount of sort of re-entry velocity that you need to slow it down by to get that material safely back to Earth without hurting anyone and not having your your platinum asteroid explode in the atmosphere. Roxanne Romansky. I love your QA episodes. I've learned all kinds of things I never thought of. Anyway, all the videos I've seen about humans living on Mars, I don't think it's ever mentioned that they need some sort of plan for the moons. What will happen when Deimos leaves and Phobos smashes into Mars? People watching this QA might not know, but Phobos, this is one, the larger moon of Mars, is orbiting faster than the length of a day on Mars. And when you, whenever you have that situation, that means that the moon is moving inward as opposed to like the Earth's moon, which is moving outward. And so what that means is in the next 20 to 50 to 100 million years, Phobos is going to crash into the surface of Mars, which would be bad. Uh, so what can you do about it? Well, the first thing is you just like don't worry about it and don't think about the future because it's like, you know, 50 million years from now, which is like the time when the dinosaurs were here and the chances of human beings in the same form 50 million years into the future is pretty low. 
but the other possibility is that you would move it and you and there's lots of technologies you could you know you could put solar sails on phobos you could use thrusters you could you know there's various techniques you could use to slowly raise its orbit to get it to the point that it goes around mars once every day and maybe a little bit longer than that and then phobos would start to drift outward from mars so i think that's the kind of thing like if hopefully in 50 million years we will have gained the technology to be able to do that but you know it's good to be thinking about the future eric thatcher if we wanted to terraform venus using an asteroid to create a global winter how big would it need to be also, might it need to speed up rotation to create an Earth-like environment? The problem with Venus is that it is already just the worst environment, right? It's 450 degrees Celsius, incredibly hot, and you need some way to cool it down. And I don't think that you would get what you want out of an asteroid. I mean, maybe you cool it down just a tiny little bit. If you smash an asteroid into Venus, maybe you would get some kind of worldwide cooling, but not by a lot, right? A few degrees, and it wouldn't last for very long. To really cool down Venus, you need to block all the light from the sun. And so that's the idea of a sunshade. If you could put some kind of sunshade out that would block the light from the sun, then Venus would just naturally cool down. And once it got cold enough, all of that carbon dioxide would just snow right out of the atmosphere and just form snowdrifts on the surface of the planet. And you see that with Mars. Like Mars has a carbon dioxide layer in its polar ice caps, and that's because it's so cold you know, in the wintertime at its, at its ice caps. So, so that is the way that you would deal with that carbon dioxide. And then you would, I don't know what you do with it. You would bury it. You would uh, try to bind it up with some kind of material so that then if you let the sun back in and it started to warm up on Venus again, you wouldn't get this incredibly thick, intense atmosphere. So that's it, sunshade. White dinosaur, why not launch from a high mountain? This was in relation to the comment about the balloon rockets and you know the idea of launching a rocket from the top of a mountain is a very good idea. I mean, right now, most rockets are launched close, as close to the equator as possible. So the Kennedy Space Center is sort of the perfect example of that. The closer you get to the equator, the more of the Earth's rotation you get as a benefit to when you launch a rocket. It's sort of like a slingshot that kicks you, helps to kick you up into orbit. And if the higher altitude that you can launch from, the less atmosphere that you're gonna to have to go through. So the best places to launch in the world would be from the top of a mountain that's as close as possible to the equator. And there are a couple of them, right? There's some mountains in uh, South America that are almost on the equator, uh, and they are very, very high, and they would be sort of ideal launch places. There's Africa, there's places in, um, uh, in Asia, so, so you, one of those launch locations would be perfect. Now the problem with those is they're hard to get to and they have a bad place, you know, difficult for infrastructure. When you think about the Kennedy Space Center, you, they have trains that just carry these rockets and parts right to the Kennedy Space Center and they can launch and trucks and, and highways and things like that. So it's always this balance, but you can imagine some future, there's enough infrastructure built up on one of these mountains that, you know, and the SpaceX rockets are just landing and they're putting a new cargo on them and they're taking off again, that, that they move to a place to save fuel and to be able to launch more from these, these higher altitudes. The mountains would be great. Osdor Gecko. Yesterday, Greg and Mitch from ASP 
AP Science gave the actual estimated numbers of incoming and outgoing matter. It's 40,000 metric tons in and 95,000 out. There you go. So just to just to call back to previous episode, 40,000 tons per year of material are coming in to the earth from dust and debris and asteroids and meteoroids and and gas and all that kind of stuff and 95,000 tons of our atmosphere is being blown away by the solar wind. So so we're slowly losing mass here on earth and we're replacing atmosphere with rock. Twirlup of the myths. I don't get the interest in lava tubes. More work and more exotic technology are needed than just digging a trench, dropping a hab into the trench, and covering the trench. Even a gigantic trench is easier, safer too. Lava tubes will make good short-term, weeks, months, campsites for explorers who can't bring bulldozers. Better to build permanent sites from scratch. Well, that's the point, right? Is There's two parts to this. One is it's for explorers. The first place you go to try to be on the surface of the moon and not die is to go into a lava tube. If you choose between the surface of the moon and going inside the lava tube, you're going to want to go inside the lava tube. Uh, over time, when you get some kind of permanent settlement, things like that, then you're going to want to find the best place. It may very well be that you build your own habitats and you live up on the surface and you, you stick really close to permanently shadowed ice on the surface of the moon. But the other part is the science side, right? The, the best environments on Mars and the moon are gonna be in these lava tubes and they're gonna be the places that scientists are gonna to wanna to go and explore and try to see if there's any evidence like trying to understand the history of what was going on on those worlds. Star butterfly. How far does gravity reach? Am I correct to believe it's infinite? If we had an empty, non-moving universe, if I was to place two galaxies, say, 20 billion light years apart with no motion in relation to one another, would they eventually, over billions or trillions of years, drift closer together? Yeah, the gravity moves at the speed of light, and so you are experiencing gravity from every object in the entire observable universe. And if you just had two gigantic galaxy clusters, billions of light years away, they would experience gravity from each other and they would pull themselves together and they would eventually merge over some ridiculous amount of time. Casey Chapman. Finally, it's good to hear someone else state what I've been saying for years. Why spend all the effort climbing out of your home gravity well just to throw yourself into another, probably less hospitable one? You want humanity to spread out, start mass production of O'Neill cylinders with material mined from the moon and asteroids. I figure that'll give us a better backup than planting buckloads of people on Mars. Yeah, this is my perspective, and I guess we share it. I mean, we'll have to find out, and all experiments are going to have to be done. But it feels to me that getting, once you get out of a gravity well, like the gravity well of Earth, or the gravity well of Venus, or the gravity well of Mars, or the gravity well of Jupiter, you don't ever want to use, unless it's just for like tourism purposes, you don't want to send anything back down into those gravity wells. It is so expensive. Think about it right now. Uh, I believe the most recently SpaceX is charging NASA $50,000 per kilogram to send material from Earth up to the International Space Station. Once that stuff's in space, let's keep it in space as much as possible. And I also see a future where, I don't know about O'Neill cylinders in the near term, but I can definitely see us building space stations and, and surviving out in space itself. And uh, Jeff Bezos from Blue Origin and Amazon recently announced that he would see that there could be a trillion people living comfortably in the solar system. So there's lots of room if you want to live in space. All right, 
That's it, those are all the questions for this week. As always, wherever you are, anywhere on my channel, if a question pops in your brain, just type it down and I'll answer them all here. We'll see you next week.